of Ecclesiastes. Thanks, Ben. Yes, that's right. We are in our Five Festal Garments series again this week. We're in our last two weeks, and we're going to be spending those two weeks looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the Ecclesiastes is another book in the Old Testament, just like uh, all the other books have been in this Five Festal Garments series. And it's part of the genre of wisdom literature, uh, like Proverbs and Song of Songs. Uh, now, we don't read the wisdom books in the same way that we read other types of, uh, other genres of literature in the Bible. They're their own special genre. So we don't read them in the same way that we read the law. The law gives us um, absolutes, it gives us commands. When we read wisdom literature, instead, it's trying to interpret the rhythms and the patterns of the way that God has created the world and to understand how do we best live in the world because of the way God has created it. Nor do we read uh, the wisdom books in the same way that we read narrative or history. It's not trying to account, the book of Ecclesiastes is not accounting specific historical events or um, spelling out stories. Instead, it's observing normal, everyday situations uh, the language is often really poetic, so there's lots of metaphors, there's lots of imagery in there, and it's trying to figure out how do we make sense of these everyday situations and circumstances. Now, similar to the book of Proverbs, which you might be a little bit more familiar with, uh, Ecclesiastes is a collection of observations and instructions put together in tight and complex patterns. It does read quite differently to the book of Proverbs, though. And those patterns and those rhythms in the book are not always really obvious to us as modern uh, Western readers. They would have been much more obvious to the original readers uh, reading it in the original Hebrew. Now, although most wisdom literature we know is attributed to King Solomon, he's known as the typical wise king of Israel, that was, that was his reputation, that was his big contribution uh, to the nation of Israel, this book of Ecclesiastes is probably not written by him specifically, but it's written in the tradition of King Solomon as a tribute to him and to his wisdom. But you'll also see in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is some tension between it and some of the other wisdom books. Uh, now, probably the, best, the bit we know best of this book uh, is, was immortalised in the song Turn, Turn, Turn in the early 60s by Peter Seeger and covered by many, many bands since then. There's a time to everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And really, that might be the most positive part of the book of Ecclesiastes. Overall, it's, it's a pretty pessimistic book. Um, it talks about the same kind of themes that a lot of the other wisdom literature talks about. It affirms the importance of working hard, the goodness of relationships and, a, and the need to be obedient to God, but it coats them all with this kind of blanket of depressing futility because of the, the fleeting and cyclical nature of life. Um, it's better to work hard than to not, but you're just going to have to work again tomorrow. It's better to have good relationships than to be on your own, but all those relationships are going to end at some time. Uh, it's better to be wise than to be foolish, but we're all going to die anyway. Uh, so we've got a really fun couple of weeks to finish up lockdown for us together. <laughs>
Um, a couple of things to know about the book of Ecclesiastes. The main speaker is a guy called the teacher, and he's the one that really dominates this book. Uh, he's looking for meaning in life, and he's finding himself frustrated by the temporary nature of everything that he observes. He seems to recognise God's sovereignty, but he can't fathom why he has made the world the way that it is. And he has his eyes very firmly fixed on the here and now, on what's directly in front of him, rather than the eternal and good God. The other character that pops up um, just a little bit in this book is the narrator, who briefly introduces the teacher and then gives a summary of what he said at the end. Uh, he does commend the teacher as wise, but he also gives us a bit of perspective on what the teacher has concluded. As much as this might, after that, seem like a bit of an unappealing book, it's actually one that really helps us to think about some of the bigger questions in life. Helps us to think about those questions for our own sake, but also for the sake of those who might be looking for meaning and experiencing the same kind of futility that we see the teacher experiencing. Um, it helps us to think about the point of our time on earth, the value of our work, the importance of relationships and all these things that ultimately we know are temporary. How do we make sense of the futility that the teacher obsesses over in light of what we know from the rest of Scripture? And how do we make sense of it particularly in light of the Gospel? Well, we're going to be thinking uh, more about that in a moment with Mike. But first, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read from God's Word together. So please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a book uh, that it can be a little bit difficult to read, can be a little bit confusing sometimes, but we thank you that you help us in Scripture to look at some of the big and hard questions that we need to ask about the nature of our lives and the way that you have made the world. Father, we pray that you will be working through each one of us by your spirit, be stirring in our hearts and in our minds to help us to understand uh, what you have to share with us today. We pray that you'll be strengthening Mike as he comes to bring your word to us. And Lord, we pray that we will leave uh, this morning's service and next week's service wiser understanding the way that you have made the world better and seeing your goodness and your eternal nature. Amen. All right, uh, let's open our Bibles together to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 11. I'll give you a moment just to find that now. Ecclesiastes 1 it goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So if you start in the middle of your Bible and then turn forward a bit, it's a bit easier to find that way. Starting at chapter 1, and I'm going to read through to verse 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises again. 
The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Joss. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, keep your Bible open there in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I wonder if perhaps you maybe found it hard then to say thanks be to God at the end of uh, that introduction. Um, but I hope actually at the end of this you will be able to say thanks be to God uh, for this timely uh, and modern word, I think, that we hear in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me pray and we're going to dig into these first 11 verses. Our Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and that you speak to us in all manner of ways. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through this wisdom literature that helps us to kind of see the rhythms and patterns of this world and actually points us beyond the things that we see before us to lift our eyes above the sun, to look to you for meaning, for hope and for life itself. And so, Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the Lord Jesus definitively so that we might know for certain life and hope in his name and we pray this morning as we uh, get this bit of an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes and look at these first 11 verses you would help us to see how Jesus is the one who gives meaning to a wearisome life and we pray this in Jesus name Amen. Now I don't uh, consider myself to be a particularly depressive person. I think I'm probably more down the glass half full end of the optimism scale. Uh, but having said that, I do get kind of tired and weary with life. Uh, and I remember the moment when I first came to realise how tiresome life could be. I think I was somewhere around 19, 20 years old. I was at uh, my parents' place sitting on the front porch after work. Uh, and I was cutting my toenails, doing a little bit of, you know, personal grooming. Uh, and it was that one seemingly insignificant act that plunged me into the pit of despair. I remember sitting there, my shoulders sank, the clippers, they just dropped out of my lifeless hand. And I realised I would have to keep cutting my toenails for the rest of my natural life. Again and again, I would cut them and they would grow back. And this would be our lifelong dance ad nauseum. Now, it was such a mundane observation, but I found the thought of it just so oppressive. And in the end, it wasn't just the toenails that got to me. It was more about the profound idea that lay behind it. I mean, the toenails are just one small example in a life full of tedious chores. And if you just take a, a step back for a moment, you can think of other things like this. You know, mowing the lawn, 
weeding the garden, making your bed, brushing your teeth, cutting your hair, shaving, making lunch, washing dishes, washing clothes, washing the car, going to sleep at night and then waking up again every single day. There is just no end to them, to the never-ending cycle of tedious chores. And each day is the same. The sun rises and it sets again. The rain falls and then it evaporates. The tide comes in and the tide goes out again. The wind blows to the south and then it turns to the north. Round and round it goes without ceasing. And the conclusion, I think, is just inescapable. Life is repetitive. Life is monotonous. Life is is wearisome and it is unrelenting and as the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say, life, it is meaningless. Now, when I reflect on it, I think I was probably just a little tired that day or maybe it was just the weather. I'm not struck by such depressive thoughts every time I do a bit of personal grooming and in fact, I'd I'd really love to get a, a haircut sometime soon. But it really was an Ecclesiastes moment because this is the type of thought that is expressed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is wearisome, repetitive, monotonous and meaningless. And obviously, as you just heard from Joss, it's not the cheeriest of books. But it is comforting to know that I am not the first person or the only person to wrestle with these ideas. And maybe you're a person who struggles with depression. Or maybe you're a person who only comes across these thoughts from time to time. Or maybe you're a person who has never looked at the world that way. But whether these thoughts are common to you or not, Ecclesiastes will help us confront some of the harsh realities of life and those uncomfortable thoughts that occasionally surface and just prick our conscience. It's a book that never fails to draw out the deep philosophical questions of life. Its ideas are somehow both ancient and yet surprisingly modern. Perhaps it's because for all our self-proclaimed enlightenment, we still haven't been able to work out what life really is all about or come to grips with the continual problems of suffering and social inequality and injustice that pervade every area of life. The sort of things that plague the world, this place that we call home. These are the very things that Ecclesiastes is keen to explore and to help us face. See, this really is a timeless book. But frustratingly, at times, it seems just as profound as it is confusing. And we will come some way to being able to understand it better if we can first recognise those two voices that Joss spoke about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've already read the book through, and I would encourage you to do that, it's only 12 chapters, Uh, it's quite an entertaining read, you might even find uh, some of the jokes and the humour in there just as entertaining, or perhaps maybe some of the observations that really resonate with you. But if you've read through, you would have noticed those two voices. And so, here's our first point, I hear voices. The first voice we encounter is the voice of the narrator and it's his voice that we hear in these opening 11 verses as he introduces the teacher or Kehelet, which might actually be his name. It's hard to know what that word means. We call him the teacher, some translations the preacher, but maybe his name is Kehelet. 
And he summarises the main theme. Chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, that word for meaningless might be translated as vanity or vapour. It's mist. It's kind of hard to grasp. It's transient. But I think meaningless kind of captures all those ideas. And then again, at the end of the book... Uh, in chapter 12, the narrator speaks with a conclusion and a summary of the main theme. Chapter 12, verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Now, it's not the sort of thesis that kind of lifts your soul and fills you with optimism. And if that was the total sum of what Ecclesiastes had to offer, then I think we should probably all just go home with a few tubs of ice cream and eat ourselves into oblivion, because who cares? But the narrator doesn't leave us there. Instead, and I think perhaps most importantly, at the end of the book, the narrator gives us direction for understanding Kohelet's words. He weighs up what we've heard, he gives us due warning, and then he brings the whole matter, everything that's explored in the book, into perspective. Now, if you flick to the end of the book, go to chapter 12, verse 10, because I think, actually, this is the key verse. Now, there's quite a bit of debate on how to understand this verse. The the original language is quite ambiguous. But I think this is the modern, modern equivalent of the Encouragement Award, Uh, You know, the award that you give to the person in the team who can't bat, they can't bowl, they can't field, but they try hard, right? I've received a few (laughs) encouragement awards in my lifetime. Um, And I'm going to read chapter uh, chapter 12, verse 10 from the New American Standard Bible, only because I think it represents the idea a little bit more clearly. Um, But this is the narrator's report card for the teacher at the end of the book. Chapter 12, verse 10... The teacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. That is, the teacher, Kehelet, he sought to write words of delight, but you can hardly call his words delightful. And he sought to write words of truth correctly, and there is a lot of truth in there, but it's not the whole truth. The teacher tried his best to find the right words and to write what is upright and true. That's what he tried to do. This was the teacher's goal from the very beginning, to search out and understand all that is done under the heavens. Chapter 1, verse 13. And yet, throughout the book, we see Kehelet thwarted at every turn, and he never actually reaches his goal. So the narrator weighs up his words... And he hands him the encouragement award and he says, you tried your best, right? You were close, but no cigar. And with this evaluation, the narrator then gives us a warning. Chapter 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by a shepherd. Be warned, my son, of adding anything to them. And be warned of making many books. There is no end, and much study is weariness, or is weary to the body. So be warned of seeking your own wisdom and its futility, and be warned of endless postulating and its weariness. This is the conclusion, chapter 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments, 
For this is the duty of every human being. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the summary, this is the warning, and this is the perspective of the narrator and our perspective of the teacher's words. And so, in a way, Ecclesiastes as a whole is not to be characterised as a pessimistic book full of hopelessness. Yes, the pessimism of the teacher is a major feature of the book, but the narrator closes the book on a positive note that helps us make sense of the teacher's words. Right? This is the framework with which we are to understand Kohelet. And keeping this in mind, we turn to the most obvious and dominant voice in Ecclesiastes, that is, the voice of Kohelet himself. Right? He is introduced to us here in verse 1 of chapter 1 as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so, like Jocelyn said before, we're most naturally supposed to associate the teacher as King Solomon, who was the son of King David, the successor to the throne in Israel, and renowned throughout the whole world for his wisdom. But it is worth pointing out there are inconsistencies within the book of Ecclesiastes itself that make it unlikely that Solomon and the teacher are the same person. It seems more likely that the writer is just portraying the teacher as Solomon and using his persona as a, a clever literary device. And now, even though that might be an affront to our 21st century sensibilities, the fictional autobiography seems to be a, a very and perfectly acceptable genre in the ancient Near East. And so I think that's okay. Let's read it in the genre with which it is written. But I think the writer does identify the teacher with Solomon for a very particular reason. And because he does it, it means that we can't just dismiss this as the pessimistic ramblings of an old fool. Rather, the voice of the teacher, the voice of Kohelet, is the voice of a wise man. He is a skilled cultural exegete. He sees and exposes all those niggling worries that we are too scared to acknowledge ourselves. Those fears and concerns that we would rather not face up to. We would rather not give voice to them. Because, well, ignorance is bliss, isn't it? And if I have to stare all the disappointments and concerns of this world square in the face, then the frustration and despair might just be too much for me to bear. So, I sip my latte, I go about my work, and I forget those big questions. But as we read along with the teacher in Ecclesiastes, we are forced to confront them. We are forced to face them as he searches in vain to find meaning in the world that exists under the sun. As he is frustrated with the limitation of human understanding, as he's despondent with the brevity of life and almost paralysed by his own inability to fathom the ways of God, the God that he believes in. Right? This is the voice of the teacher and it is clear that his voice is one of despair. And as the narrator introduces us to the words of the teacher and summarises his teaching, there are three things that the teacher is anguished by. So let's turn to the voice of despair. Here we are back in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. 
What does anyone gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Life is wearisome, says the teacher. Uh, It's like a broken record, if you know what those are, or a scratched CD, if you know what that is, or perhaps maybe an iPod which is just stuck on repeat for one track over and over again, constantly repeating itself over and over and over and over and over. You get the point. I don't know about you, but even before this lockdown that we're in, I think life gets like this sometimes. Like all you've been doing is going to sleep, getting up, going to work or going to school and coming home and going to sleep and getting up and going to work or going to school and coming home. And now after 13 weeks of lockdown, all of this I think has just been squeezed into the confines of your own home or or your own five kilometre radius and we've been stuck here for 13 weeks or is it 14 weeks or 15? I, I can't remember. We've been here so long. Life can be a grind. And I wonder if you identify with the teacher here. Right? Your life may not be bad, it may not be terrible, but perhaps it does feel like it's just going round in circles. It's that hamster wheel. Maybe you feel trapped in a monotonous routine or stuck on the tedious treadmill of life. Do you identify with the teacher and his concerns, his observations at this point? Is he describing an anguish that you have? Well, secondly, the teacher despairs at life's frustrating predictability. So chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here even before our time. There is nothing new under the sun. Really? What about iPhones? What about the latest iPhone? What about landing on the moon? What about sliced bread? How can someone say, like the teacher, that there is nothing new under the sun? I think if anything, there's too many new things. Every time I buy something new, it's then superseded almost immediately by the next new thing that comes out the day after. Right? Our culture and our economy thrives on consuming the new and getting rid of the old. We always, we're always talking about progress and moving forward. Right? There are always new things being invented, new things that I want to consume, and that is true. But at the most basic level, really, is there anything new? I mean, iPhones, that's just another mode for people to communicate with other people, isn't it? I mean, that's been happening ever since the first man said, oak, to the first woman. And what about landing on the moon? Well, 
that's just people exploring their environment, isn't it? And before the moon, it was the earth, and before the earth, it was your country, and before your country, it was your village, and before your village, it was the exploration of your lounge room. And sliced bread, well, I mean, what is the best thing since sliced bread? Who knows? It's pretty special. But that's really just another way of getting food into your mouth, isn't it? And eating is so 30 billion BC. No, there is nothing new under the sun. Only reinvented ways of doing the same old things. And so, is this you? Do you identify with the teacher here at this point? Life just seems to feel old hat to you. You're never satisfied. No matter what new thing comes, you really feel that nothing has caught your attention, has captivated your heart or your hope. Nothing but the same regurgitated ideas in shiny new packages. Do you identify with the teacher at this point? Is he describing an anguish that you have and you feel? Well, thirdly, the teacher despairs at life's meagre impact for the future. Have a look at verse 11 of chapter 1. There is no remembrance of people of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Oof. Your life is empty. It has no significance whatsoever. Because you will not be remembered. You are, you are a speck on a speck in the middle of a universe and you are only here for an instant. It is such a belittling and humbling truth that despite all our efforts to make a mark for ourselves in this life, to, to leave a legacy that people will remember us by, when you die, the world just keeps on turning. Now, our house is actually surrounded by a graveyard. It's a, it's a beautiful place to live. It's full of headstones that are so worn by age that no one can, uh, that you can no longer read them. There are people buried in that graveyard and we don't know who they are. They've been forgotten. And just as that tombstone and your body decays, so the memory of you will decay and fade into the past as well. There is no remembrance of people of old and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Do you identify with the teacher at this point? Are you confounded by life's insignificance? Is he describing an anguish that you yourself feel about your own life? Well, what are we to make of all this? Right, these first depressing 11 verses. Well, like we said earlier, the, the narrator gives us the framework for understanding the teacher's words. What are we to do with this? We are to fear God and keep His commands. Right, this is the motto and conclusion of every wisdom book in the Bible, whether it's Job, whether it's Proverbs, whether it's a Song of Songs, it is fear God and keep His commands. And what do we need to understand wisdom? Well, we need a wise man to show us what this means, to show us what this looks like. We need a wise man to lead the way. And who else is the wisest man but the Lord Jesus? Right? He's the ultimate wise man. 
He is even God's wisdom for us. No other person has feared God and kept his commands as the Lord Jesus has. And so with that, we turn our attention to hear the voice of Jesus. Here's our third and last point. I mean, what does Jesus have to say with those of us who, like the teacher, identify with the weariness of life? Well, how about these verses from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28? Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These words are such a comfort for a, a world where we are weighed down with weariness, where we are tired of going around that same tedious treadmill in life. Are you weary? Are you depressed with life? Are you tired with it? Well, then yoke yourself with Jesus. Learn from him. He is gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul with him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus gives rest to the weary. And what hope does Jesus offer for those who are frustrated with the chaos of this life? Well, perhaps hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 18. Brothers and sisters, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. All of creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, this place where we live, was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, in the hope that creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know all too well that this world is full of disaster and heartbreak and tragedy. There is nothing new under the sun. It's been like this for as long as we've been rebelling against the God who created it. But it will not remain this way forever. It will not always be a frustrating experience to live, to know life. No, the frustrated creation that we know will one day be set free from its bondage to decay. And all the children of God can enjoy this new hope through Jesus. Now, Jesus transforms our frustration into hopeful expectation. And finally, how does Jesus speak to those of us who despair about our meagre existence? We're about to go into the book of 1 Peter, so let me pick out these choice verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, things that are here today, gone tomorrow, meaningless, vain things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, generation after generation, the same keeps happening again. no. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. What does Kehelet say? The teacher says there is no remembrance of people of old and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Your life is empty and meaningless. But what has Jesus done? Jesus rescues us from this empty way of life. And if it is true that you are only worth what people are willing to, uh, things are only worth what people are willing to pay for them, then how precious are you to your Father in heaven? And how precious is your life to the one who redeemed you with his own blood? No matter how meagre or short or fleeting your life is, you are precious. You are a precious child of the Father with Jesus the Son. The teacher says that life is wearisome and it is sometimes. The teacher says that there is nothing new under the sun and there isn't. The teacher says you will not be remembered by the generations that follow after you and you probably won't. But you are always remembered by God the Father. Your life is hidden with Christ in God and when Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. We identify with the observations and the despair that the teacher notices. But we have more than sufficient meaning, life and hope in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus does give rest to the weary. Jesus does transform frustration into hopeful expectation. Jesus does rescue us from the emptiness of this life and Jesus gives meaning to a wearisome life. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have meaning, that we have hopeful expectation, that we have rest, that we have redemption from this empty way of life. Father, we thank you that Jesus gives meaning to the wearisome that we feel in this life, that we are significant because of what you have done for us and how you have brought us into your family as your children with Jesus the Son. Father, we pray that you'd help us to face up to the hardness of this life as we read along with the teacher, but that we would not end in despair, we would instead turn our despair to the Lord Jesus, laying our very lives at his feet, that we might know hope and meaning in his name. And we pray this. Amen.